Thank you. And to be clear, it's his final race for this season, right? So, yeah. I'm all about the safety for Pastor Bob. So, um, sometimes I feel like there's so much stuff I'd like to put up here. I need like a little extender part. So, so good morning, guys. I, I've just, I'm so honored to be able to get to teach a second week in a row, which is awesome. And uh, we, at Wednesday night service, you know that that's a preview for what we talk about on Sunday. And a lot of times we will determine um, some of the focus of what Sunday is based on the conversations we have with the people that go on Wednesday, because it can be kind of spirited. Um, and Wednesday I came, just full disclosure, I had all kinds of notes. I was like, there is so much in this passage. How do you possibly, you know, make it into something that fits in a single service time, right? And the thing is, I've got to remind myself, you can't, right? And that's okay. We're, we focus in on what we focus in on, and we know that this is a lifetime of study that we're doing when we're in the Word. So we're in Mark. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, or your phone Bible, whatever it is, we're in Mark 13, and we're going to be covering verses 1 through 23 today. So you might want to go ahead and pull that out. If you take notes, get that ready. Um, in your Bible, most of the time, you will see there are little subtitles uh, before each section that, you know, so that gives you a little heads up as to what we're studying. In mine, this says Jesus speaks about the future. You might get something else where it says end times, that kind of thing. We're going to address some of those things as we go through this. Um, I want to give you a few pieces of your, you know, I always like to give you your... Um, trivia facts to make sure that you can, you know, if somebody throws something at you, you know what they're talking about. This particular passage that we're in today and that Bob will be teaching on next week as well is called um, the Olivet Discourse. And that's because this is taught from the Mount of Olives, all right? So if anybody mentions that to you and they're trying to throw you, you can know what they're talking about. And in the Gospel of Mark, this is the longest sustained teaching by Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So those are some things just for you to know about this particular section we're going into. We talk all the time about um, being familiar with parallel accounts of a story. And in this particular one that we're talking about, there are parallel accounts in both Matthew and Luke. And unlike last week where the parallel accounts were almost identical, there's some different wording in these that I think would be, uh, would be useful if you guys would like to go ahead and study this out a little bit farther. Um, so if, again, if you take notes, I'm going to give you those accounts now. They're in Matthew 24, 1 through 25, and Luke 21, 5 through 24. So just have that information. So if you, after we um, are done with today and you're like, gosh, you know, I, I think I want to know a little bit more about this and study it out, when you read a parallel account, it will give you sometimes details that are not included in one of the other accounts. Maybe the focus is a little bit different. The wording is either more or less understandable. You don't know. Um, but it can give you a fuller picture. And then you can take your study from there into word study or commentaries or cultural and historical things. So, but I think that's important, and I'm, I'm going to mention it probably every time I teach. <laughs> so uh, there you go. All right, so to recap where we were last week, so we can set the stage going into today, because this is an, um, this is an extension of last week. This is all on this same day. We taught, I taught about the widow's might, and this is where Jesus is talking to the disciples, and they're in the treasury area, and a widow gives two 
small coins. And Jesus points out to the disciples, the two small coins that she is giving is more than all of this big showy giving that is happening around her because it is sacrificial and she is giving it freely of her own heart. She's got a good heart for giving it. And he's saying, truly, I tell you, what she's giving is more than what anybody else is giving. So he's telling him, you know, don't be swayed and don't be blinded by flashy giving, so to speak, right? And so it was much more intense a message than just that. But that's where we are, are where he has just finished talking with the disciples. And we're going to lead into verse 1 from there. So verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. All right, so I've got a little um, model that you can see. This is a model that they've got in Jerusalem at a museum that shows uh, a rendering of what the temple would have looked like. So it would have been impressive. It would have been an amazing, amazing structure. That whole... um, uh, that whole area with all of the buildings surrounding, surrounding it would have been pretty impressive. And this, just so you guys remember, this is not the temple that Solomon built that was destroyed. This is the rebuilt temple that Herod funded. And he started bu- building that in about 19 BC, and it was still being rebuilt in the lifetime of Jesus. But one of the things that you have to kind of remind yourself when you're reading this passage, Jesus just got finished telling them, don't be swayed by, you know, flash, you know, don't let these things that are so amazing and seem expensive and opulent or whatever, I know they're they're, um, eye-catching, but don't let them sway you. And then the minute they walk out, they're in awe of this building. And we can understand that as people, you see things and you're like, gosh, that's pretty amazing. But Jesus like shuts this down immediately. And we move into verse two, where Jesus replied, yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. You know, that's like mic drop. And then, right? So, um, and then he goes on to say in verse three, Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? So Jesus goes on and he starts with some general signs. So they are, as we look at this, Let's not overthink it, because we're going to talk about the fact that there can be possibly end-time components to this, but we're going to talk about right now the flow of this conversation. When are these signs signaling the destruction of the temple that Jesus just alluded to? When is this going to happen? And so he starts with general signs. We're going to start in verse 5. Jesus replied, "'Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah.'" They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines. But this is the only, this is, sorry, this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. And then he transitions from those big view things to things that are more personal to the disciples, starting in verse 9. 
when these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me, for the good news must be preached to all nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at the time, for it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death, a father will betray his own child, and children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." So this isn't your warm fuzzy, right? <laughs> you know, sometimes, you know, we are looking at a teaching that is so, just so, just makes you feel so good. And, and I love what he says, like, but don't panic. <laughs> like, sure, Jesus, all right, if you say so. So Jesus is giving them prophetic insight, but on what? What is he talking about with these prophetic words? And this is, this section, the Olivet Discourse is a very, controversial passage. You might not think so, but it really, really is. So is he just talking about the destruction and the temple of the short term, right? The, what's coming up in the short term. And there were some signs that, that show that he, that is part of what he's talking about, or at least I believe that's part of what he's talking about. Some of the signs that Jesus warned them about that would signal the destruction of the temple are earthquakes. He talks about earthquakes, right? And we know in Phrygia and Pompeii, Prior to the destruction of the temple around 70 AD, there were significant earthquakes in those areas. He talks about famines. We know that there are recorded famines in uh, AD 41 and AD 54. And he talks about wars and rumors of wars. And so, as we know, there's a lot of, and we are reading in the Bible, there's so much division and there's so much threats against um, the Christians and the Jewish people, especially by the Romans. And the Romans just, you know, they were Romans. They wanted what they wanted. And so there were some threats that did not come to pass, but ultimately we know there was a Jewish revolt against the Romans in AD 66, and that led to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. All right, and this part of this was they wanted the Jewish people to give up the temple. They wanted them to surrender the temple and even offered at that point not to destroy it, but the Jewish people would not do that. So this, so this fits, like Jesus has this nailed right in his prophetic words as we look at in relation to the destruction of the temple, 100% they line up. Or though, we have to consider, is he talking about end times? in this? Or is it a combination of both? So one of the things that we teach in the Bible, one of the things that scholars talk about in the Bible is the idea of short-term and long-term fulfillment. And sometimes there is both of those things. Sometimes there are things in the Old Testament that were prophesied that had short-term fulfillments and some that had long-term implications and some that had both. It was talking both about what was about to happen and what was going to happen. And we have to remember when we think about the Bible as a dynamic book that God has, has written for us, it had to have a component for them that were writing it in their historical perspective, in their cultural perspective, but then it also needed to have the longevity 
to matter to us, to be a guide for us to know what his will is and how to follow that will, how to hear from him, to know his character so we can tell the truth from a lie. So this is something that's very, very richly debated. And Bob would get into some more of the more debated language as we get into next week. But I want you to know this, because sometimes when you're taught something, you're taught it one way, and that's the only way you know it. And then somebody comes up to you, and they try to use something that you have held on to to discredit Jesus, right? To tell you, this doesn't match. This timeline doesn't match. You need to be aware of that. You need to be able to study this out, and you need to know why you believe what you believe. I'm not going to tell you one way is wrong and one way is right, because when I look at this, I, in my study, believe there are elements of both those things, both that short-term and that long-term fulfillment. But you need to be prepared because this world is full of people who want to grab your faith from you. And you can't just take what somebody has always taught you and not know why you believe that. And so it's so important to study this and to study it with a critical eye and an open heart, an open heart to want to know the truth, God's truth, and not just have um, a person's opinion validated. And we've talked about that a lot because that's where things can go so wrong. I read this and I think, you know, we know from previous passages um, that we've studied in Mark that the disciples already kind of had a hard time grasping even the fact that Jesus had to die, right? How many times did Jesus go through a very, very extensive uh, talk with them, telling them that he was going to have to be sacrificed? And then they start moving on, and they're like, so what did you mean by what you, that you had to die, you know? Or, hey, can we sit on either side of you in the throne room when you're in heaven? And it was like, sometimes they seemed like they just weren't grasping some of the long-term implications of what was going on. It was a lot. Jesus's ministry on this earth was short. His time with them was short, and that would have been just a huge amount for them to grasp. So a did he try to explain all that? Or did he just know that they would tell that story and it would mean something for them in that moment and it would mean something for us today? That's something that we have to keep in mind and again, study it with that prayerful heart wanting to know the truth. So in the practical, Jesus goes on from this point to impress upon them the urgency that they should treat the situation when these signs start to come to pass. So we start in verse 14. The day is coming where you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. And then it says in parentheses, reader, pay attention. That's not Jesus saying that. That's the writer saying, reader, pay attention. And I'm going to I'm going to point out a difference in translation. I'm in the NLT when we get to the end of this because I hear a little, little murmuring going on. I'm going to address this, okay? So the day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. 
how terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter, for there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. So that's a lot. There's a lot in there. So in verse 14, I want to point out that in many of those translations, it's going to read abomination of desolation, all right, instead of a sacrilegious object. And what that refers to is Old Testament uh, prophecy in Daniel that's given to him by the archangel Gabriel. It's in Daniel 9, 20 through 27. I'm not going to read it, but make a note of it if you want to read that. But it's talking and alluding about some kind of pagan desecration of the temple. And there are a few candidates for what that could be, but many scholars um, believe that it is the actual um, destruction of the temple. And that was by when the uh, Romans besieged the temple and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple under Roman general Titus. And they believe that's that desecration. Where, where you're talking about you know, a sacrilegious object where it should not be, or where he should not be, some say it, some say he. Again, we this is where the study comes in. And the scholars that believe it's this particular incident where the temple is destroyed, it would be the Romans going in there to begin with. Because we talked last week, right, about how in the temple there were certain areas that people were allowed to be. The Gentiles on the outside, the court of women, the the. Jewish men, the priests, that type of thing. And so that would have been a desecration, just having the Romans go in there across those barriers and then obviously destroying the temple. I want to also point out in verses 15 through 18, it talks about fleeing to the mountains. And this was a very interesting study that this was very contrary to what the popular understanding of what they should do. Because Prior to this, the idea would be you would flee to a town that was walled and could be defended. So the idea would be flee to Jerusalem because it has walls and can be defended. But that's not what Jesus told them to do. Jesus is telling his disciples, when this happens, you flee to the mountains, you flee to the hills, and make sure you're Everybody knows that. And that's what they tell people. So I want to show you a map right here. It's not a super fancy map, but this is um, where tradition holds that they uh, fled to Pella. And when I say tradition, that just means that it doesn't say specifically in the Bible. So if it doesn't say specifically in the Bible, then I can't tell you 100% that is exactly what it was, but I can tell you that's what tradition holds. And this is because of people, and I guess maybe we don't have the map. Um, Over the years, they would say that they were descended from those first century Jewish families, and, and that was oral tradition that would come. So that's where that holds. Okay, there we go, here we go. Again, all of that work for this, like, I could have done this on a napkin, right? So, um, so this is kind of the area that they would have been. So instead of going to Jerusalem, the Christians went up here to Pella. And why is that significant? 
one, because like I said, that's not what the, the normal uh, strategy would have been for them. And what happens from, from that? Well, what happens is that the Jews went to Jerusalem and over a million were slaughtered at that time while the Christians fled to the mountains and were not. So that, I mean, that's an enormous thing. And we know from Jesus's lifetime here, it's not like he was, you know, you know sitting there doing military strategy with everybody. He knew this. He knew this and he told them and what he told them came to pass. Not being deceived was of the utmost importance then as it is now. Jesus's prophetic words on the destruction of the temple part at least prepared them in the natural, right, for the practical, but his accuracy, like spot-on accuracy, proved he was who he said he was. And imagine the comfort and the assuredness and the confidence that that would give the disciples, knowing what we know they still had yet to face going forward. I had somebody ask me on Wednesday night, were false messiahs a problem back then in the first century? And yes, they were, you know. Um, historians, the Bible, uh, historians like Josephus documented false, uh, false messiahs prior to the destruction of the temple, which follows Jesus's words. And in that first century, prior to the destruction of the temple, these false messiahs, along with their own personal false prophets, would rise up often to try to further whatever they wanted, which was mainly freedom from the Romans, right? Remember, we've talked about when Jesus came, he wasn't the Messiah people expected because what they wanted is they wanted the Romans out of there. They wanted to be free from them and they wanted them to get their butts kicked is essentially what they wanted. And that wasn't the Messiah that Jesus was. The, The freedom he offered was a little bit of a different kind of freedom, right? And so uh, Josephus talks about this, and I'm just going to read a little, a little section from his writing. And just so you guys know, if this is something like the historical accounts outside of the Bible or something that helps you see the historical accuracy of what we're studying, you can, you can read his works. You can go on Amazon or someplace else, right, and buy the works of Jos- Josephus and read these historical accounts. So Josephus speaks of these false messiahs like this. Another body of wicked men also sprung up, cleaner in their hands, but more wicked in their intentions, who destroyed the peace of the city no less than did these murderers, the Sicarii. And I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. For they were deceivers and deluders of the people, and under pretense of divine illumination, were for innovations and changes and prevailed on the multitudes to act like madmen and went before them in the wilderness, pretending that God would there show them signs of liberty. And we know ultimately these messiahs failed. They failed to produce on the miracles they promised or the the prophecies that they put out there never came to pass. And ultimately their followers were widely killed by the Roman soldiers. In the Bible, again, if you want to take notes, in the Bible it mentions some of these false messiahs and prophets. Judah the Galilean is mentioned in Acts 5.37. Thutis is mentioned in Acts 5.36. And in Josephus' um, Antiquities book, he writes about 
this Thutis in AD 45, how he influenced the masses. Um, and there are some, you know, they sometimes you just wonder about the counts of people. It says the masses, all right, to take up their possessions and to follow him to the Jordan River. And he claimed the Jordan would part for them at his command, right? And that's not what happened. Not what happened. And his followers were killed. They were killed by Roman soldiers at that time. A third false messiah is, is called the unnamed Egyptian, and he's in Acts 21:38. And this is where Paul's been arrested, and they mistake him for an Egyptian who had had 4,000 followers that they had brought into the desert. And they call them assassins there because they're fighting the Romans, right? What their goal was, was try to get people to come along with them. You know, okay, I'm going to say I'm the Messiah and then they'll follow me and we can have this fight that we've wanted to have from the beginning. So their motives were not pure. Their motives were not wanting the truth. Their motives were wanting what they wanted. And we understand why they wanted freedom from the Romans, but that's not the same as what God's plan was. That wasn't how to accomplish it. So, yes, they were a problem then, and they're a problem today. And it is shocking to me, because I like to spend time with you guys who are my friends, right? And I don't spend a lot of time looking out there at what nonsense is going on in the world, because we, we hear it every day on the news, and sometimes you just get a little overwhelmed. But I did a little homework for today. And so I'm going to show you this little picture here. I don't know how big this picture is going to come up. I hope it is of a cup. There we go. So I don't know if anybody knows who they were. I didn't know until I started looking um, for some examples for you guys. This is Alan John Miller. And he's part of a religious movement in Australia called Divine Truth. And he claims to be the reincarnated Jesus of Nazareth. And his wife... Mary Magdalene. And interestingly enough, even though I don't know anything about reincarnation, this is not the first spouse that he's had that he has said is Mary Magdalene. Yeah. I don't know how that tracks, but all right. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, okay. And one of the interesting things, take that Yahoo down, take him down. Um, one of the interesting things about, about this guy and we see this often when we talk about the idea of deception is that his theology changes. And what he says is that the longer he's on earth, the more he learns. And so he can adjust his theology to the divine truth of God, right? That's, yeah, exactly. That sounds really, 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 um, yeah, I know. Like, I, I, think that, I think he's not telling us the truth, right? It sounds like that might be something that is very convenient for him as he wants to change his theology. Um, I looked at a, an Apollo Quibbley, another guy who's alive today, founder of the Kingdom of Jesus Christ religious group, that he claims he's Jesus Christ, or that Jesus Christ was the Almighty Father and he's the appointed son and salvation is now completed. And then we all know probably David Koresh. I tried to pick one that I actually was familiar with. And, um, and he was somebody who had renamed himself after King David, and he and his followers were killed in an ATF raid in, in the early 90s. So when we, look at these, when we look at these people, then and now, 
And we think about deception, right? Because obviously deception was important because in the space of 23 verses, Jesus talks about it twice, about not being deceived. And he doesn't just lightly talk about it. He goes into some detail about not being deceived. So when we think about that idea of deception, we have to consider the difference between deception, like the motive, right? Deception, somebody who has interpreted scripture in a different way than us, right? Because that happens. And somebody who is just maybe newer in their, their walk, and maybe they're confused about some things because there's a lot. And so that motive deception is something that the Holy Spirit really highlighted to me because just because somebody interprets something differently, like if nobody did, we would have no need for Bible Hub. There would be one commentary there, you know what I mean? And it would be straightforward, right? And so there are many, many legitimate differences in interpretations of scripture. So we're looking for that motive of looking for the truth and not trying to further a personal agenda. Think about Apollos, right? If you've ever heard of Apollos in the Bible, um, he had a little, he was like a little weak on some of his theology on a few things and Priscilla and Aquila go to him and help mentor him to get him back on track. And he took that well, right? He wanted it to be right. So he allowed them to, to come and help him get back in the areas that maybe he had strayed a little bit. Um, and that's something that's important. And, and I point that out because often we feel we're right, right? Whatever it is you think, you think you're right. And somebody else thinks they're really right. And we have to remember those things that are salvation issues and those things that are not salvation issues. And that just because somebody believes something because they've studied it out, um, that that doesn't necessarily mean they're trying to deceive you. And that's where good conversation can happen. You know, with your Christian brothers and sisters, good conversation can happen. So regardless of where we stand on the rest of this interaction with Jesus and his disciples, whether you think it's a, a conversation solely about the destruction of the temple or about end times as well, there is one part of this message that has no ambiguity about it at all, and that is do not be deceived, right? Being grounded in the word gives us security amidst the chaos. Just like I was saying for the disciples, how secure must they have felt when they could see what Jesus said come to pass? How might that, how might that have allowed them to be able to just continue on knowing that it wasn't going to be easy for them? And we know a lot of things that were not easy for them at all. And we know a lot of things that are not easy for us. And that's where being grounded in God's word can give us the perseverance and the stamina to continue to move forward, even when it doesn't always make sense to us, even when we don't always know why it has to happen the way it does. Because when we let go of the truth, there's always a big fat lie just ready to fill that hole, right? To just jump in there and tell you something that maybe is easier you know, to keep you, you know, why, why let yourself be discouraged? Why don't you just, like, anything goes, anything you want to do, you do you, you know? We, we say that very lightly, and it's kind of a funny, funny thing, but sometimes people take that to very far extremes because really in the gospel, there isn't just a you do you, 
It isn't, it isn't like that. So before we take communion, I want to say we do not want to cast the truth of Jesus aside, right? So we are going to end on this, this painting here. Um, this is by Titian, I believe. And when I was looking for paintings of Jesus, there is just something about this painting when I look at this where I am like, this is where I want my eyes set on the man who is all deity and would come to earth and do this for me and do this for you and my family and my friends and for this world. That is where I want my eyes to be squarely on 24-7. And I don't want, let, want the enemy to come in and allow me to put up barriers and walls and fights with people just because maybe we are studying and we see something a little differently. And that's why we talk about not to create an obstacle. We need to be respectful. We need to have dialogue with each other and study with each other and remember what he did for us. And really beyond grace and grace alone, there's a lot of wiggle room. There's a lot of wiggle room for how we might interpret something, but it needs to line up with the character of God. It needs to line up with his word. And how can it do that if we don't study? How can it do that if we don't study and if we're not in the word? And if there is something that you don't understand and you feel like it doesn't line up, then I'm just going to throw it out there. It's not Jesus's mistake. It's our mistake, right? So then you need to study some more and see why? Why does this not line up? Why does this not make sense? What am, I not, what am I not getting? So worship team, you can come on up. We're going to go ahead. We're going to take communion. And what I would like during this time of communion is I would like for you guys to um, just in gratitude. I always think gratitude is a wonderful place of taking communion, to just remember that God didn't, Jesus didn't come here, God didn't send his son and Jesus come here to die on the cross. And then he's like, okay, good luck with that. And then just go on with his, his own thing, right? He stays with us every moment of every day. He is with us every step of the way. And so when we take communion, that is what we want to have in our hearts, the thankfulness that he didn't leave us to our own devices. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to know and be comforted and confident. All right, so how we do communion, we've got, uh, we'll have two couples up here that have wine and uh, bread and gluten-free crackers, and you just dip into the wine and we have a self-serve station over here where we've got juice, the same thing. But take a moment, get yourself in that moment of that place of gratitude, knowing that you are not left by yourself. Not only does, did God send his word and his son, he sent all of these other beautiful people to walk alongside you so that you would not have to be doing this alone. And let's just give him thanks, give thanks where it is due that he takes care of us each and every day. Amen? Amen. Amen.